Okay, I want to talk about Chrissy Nome today, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. It's really helpful when you actually hit that subscribe button or when you give us a five-star rating or when you write us a review. By the way, I read all of your reviews, so I really appreciate all the kind words, and I do enjoy some of the meaner ones, but don't bother about those. But if you could subscribe, that would be really helpful. It helps our podcast grow up the charts, which helps more people uh, find it and hear it and hear the reality, which is what we're all about here anyway. So if you could hit that subscribe button, it would be greatly appreciated. Okay, today I really want to talk about Christy Nome. There's been a lot of drama uh, around Christy Nome, and rightly so, by the way, about her actions when it comes to some of the very pivotal and controversial issues that are facing our nation right now. And when I say pivotal and controversial, I, of course, am talking about cultural issues because those are the hot-button issues of the day that divide even conservatives, even Republicans. This isn't just a liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat issue. When it comes to transgenders, uh, transgender athletes playing in sports, and by transgender athletes, I mean biological men who identify as women allowed to play in women's sports. Uh, When it comes to vaccine mandates, these are issues that divide the American people, not just along party line. Christy Noem is in the crosshairs of this because she, during COVID, she did a lot of good things in her state. She refused to do some of the lockdowns that other, even Republican governors around the country were doing. And there were some, even in the conservative uh, news organization sphere, the commentariat, if you will, who identified Christy Noem as one of the rising stars of conservatism. And I, I have said this before, I am an eternal skeptic whenever someone is labeled as a rising star. And in this case, I was correct because Christy Noem is not a rising star of conservatism. She published an article, an op-ed, defending herself, defending her stance, really, defending her refusal to ban vaccine mandates in her state, vaccine mandates from private businesses in her state. As you might imagine, a lot of conservatives are criticizing her for this, and rightly so, because she's a conservative governor Uh, governor in a conservative state, and she won't ban vaccine mandates. So she penned a defense of her actions. And I want to go through this because she tries to define conservatism in a way that I think is actually not conservative at all. This is the title of her piece. Conservative principles demand we restrain government. Okay, on that we agree. Let's keep going. She says, we are now seeing a battle in the Republican Party between the populist wing and traditional limited government conservatism. Some so-called conservatives want to regulate businesses to prevent them from requiring a COVID-19 vaccine as a condition of employment. Still, my beliefs do not allow me to waive the Constitution because I disagree with a private business. Okay, so she's teeing this up. She's teeing this up as her versus them, as populist versus limited government conservative. However, however, she says, I don't think businesses should require a COVID-19 vaccine as a condition of employment. I also believe that government is too big and mandates are not a conservative tool enforcing the behavior of its citizens. That's a key line right there. Remember that line. She says, I also believe that government is too big and mandates are not a conservative tool enforcing the behavior of its citizens. That line right there is going to come back to bite her in about one minute when I get to why. So hold tight. She said, since when did the Republican Party become the party of big government and social engineering using government power to force behavior? Once we as a people open the door to increase government power to put mandates on businesses, expect a Pandora's box of liberal mandates to hit in the future that touch on faith, the right to keep and bear arms, and the expanding list of genders the left has invented. 
Okay, so she's fear-mongering. She says, as governor last year, I refused to issue lockdowns or mask mandates. I did not shut down any business, nor did I close one church. I follow a principle. I am a limited government conservative in the mold of Ronald Reagan. It's a big claim right there. She said, the government may have the brute force to declare business essential, yet that is not a proper role for any government, federal or state. She said, some state legislators, legislatures and governors are trying to mandate that a person must provide proof of vaccination to work in a private business. This is a bad idea because no government has the power over the private decisions of small businesses. She then goes on to say that she used her power as government or as governor to prevent the state from issuing vaccine passports, meaning any government entity can't issue vaccine passports. But she reiterated her decision that she will not take action in the private sector. She will not take action because she doesn't believe that the government has a right to tell businesses what they can and cannot do. Again, remember that line before that she says that dictates and executive orders, which are essentially dictates, are not the way to go. During the pandemic, listen to what Christy Nome did. By the way, I just want to preface this with my extreme bias here. Christy Nome is a hypocrite on this, on this issue, a huge hypocrite. What she is not mentioning is the fact that she signed an executive order. Christy Nome decreed from her seat in the governor's mansion by executive order that all people in South Dakota must practice CDC guidelines on COVID. Not only must they practice CDC guidelines, they must encourage others to do the same. Not optional. They must practice social distancing. They must adhere and further their education about COVID-19, according to Christy Nome's decree. Christy Nome declared, she ordered, she decreed that vulnerable people must stay home if at all possible during the COVID-19 pandemic. Those are individuals. What about businesses? Christy Nome decreed via executive order meddling in the private businesses, literally the private businesses, free enterprise, private enterprise, that businesses must adhere to CDC guidelines. Businesses must limit unnecessary work travel. They must limit gatherings at work to a certain capacity size. They must suspend business. Talk about meddling in private business here. They must suspend any business in their establishment with groups of more than 10 people where social distancing, which by the way has been disproven by science, isn't possible. And hospitals, Christy Nome ordered to postpone non-essential surgeries. By the way, remember what non-essential elective surgeries are. It's not plastic surgery. It's not surgery that doesn't matter. It's integral to people's health. It's just not emergency surgery. Christy Nome decreed all of this. This wasn't from the legislature. This was an executive order from Christy Nome. The same Christy Nome who refuses to ban vaccine passports on private businesses because she doesn't think it's appropriate for the government to meddle in private business, especially with a degree. Now, if that sounds bad, it's even worse. Christy Nome refused to ban men, biological men from women's sports, even when the legislature sent her a bill. So we're not talking about executive orders now. We're talking about a piece of legislation duly passed by the people's representatives. They sent her a bill, she refused to sign it, and then she issued a weaker executive order about the same topic. But Governor Nome, I thought executive orders, I thought decrees weren't the way to go. I thought it wasn't the government's role to meddle in, in private business. Oh unless it suits your agenda, unless the lobbyists pressuring you say that it's okay. See, Christy Nome is fundamentally misunderstanding what conservative 
governance is. Because the government sometimes, especially the state governments, have a compelling interest to be involved in private business. And I'll give you a specific example here. The specific example is the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act imposes what could be defined as burdens on private businesses. You are not allowed to discriminate against someone based on the color of their skin. You are not allowed to deny service to someone based on the color of their skin. You are not allowed to act in certain way, or you must act in certain ways. You must serve someone even if you're a racist. The Civil Rights Act is a perfect example of burdens placed on private businesses by the government. But does Christy Nome think that that's wrong? That the Civil Rights Act was the government overreaching their bounds because it was imposition on private business from the government? Well, Christy Nome says no such thing. I would hope that she didn't believe that. But using her standard here, Using her standard here, you would, you would think that it is. Again, she fundamentally misunderstands what conservative governance is because we're not talking about anarchy. We're not talking about anarchy constrained only by the Constitution either, which is essentially libertarianism, right? We're talking about conservative governance because if, if, if conservative governance were just anarchy constrained merely by the Constitution, libertarianism, why have state legislatures then? Why have state and local governments at all if they have no role in legislating anything, no role in governing except in line with the Constitution? We wouldn't need state and local governments. No, don't get me wrong. I am an advocate of very limited government. I am an advocate of government keeping their hands out and their hands off of people's private business as much as humanly possible. Because for the most part, when government comes in, they don't make anything better. They make things worse. But government has a primary role when we're talking about a conservative mindset on what government is supposed to do. Government's primary role, and this is laid out by our founding fathers, it's laid out in our founding documents. Government's primary role is protecting the inherent rights of citizens from enemies foreign and domestic. That applies not just to the federal government, that applies to state governments as well. So protecting the inherent rights of citizens means that sometimes government has to get involved in a limited capacity, sure, and we should be skeptical of it, sure, and we should push back if they cross that line even by an inch, sure, but we have tons of consumer protection laws where government interferes with other what would otherwise be some sort of anarcho business. Furthermore, in the case of vaccine mandates specifically, mandated by the private sector, We know that private businesses are not acting wholly independently in issuing these vaccine mandates. We know that private businesses are being used. Sometimes they are being forced to act as enforcers of the government for the purpose of these mandates. You can look at New York City. Private businesses in New York City are now responsible for ensuring that anybody who walks through their door is fully vaccinated. Are they doing that of their own volition? No, they're not. They're doing that because the former administration of New York forced them to do it. Because the government of New York forced private businesses to do that. So it is in the people's interest to make sure that government's not forcing private businesses to act as their enforcers. So what what should Christy Noem do? Well, she should ban any business that has any connection whatsoever with government in any way, any shape, any form, any connection with taxpayer money, a grant, ban them from implementing vaccine mandates, even if these businesses are in the private sector. 
That will touch just about all businesses that would issue mandates in the first place. Again, we have to understand the what it is of conservatism. What is conservatism? It's not libertarianism. It's not anarchy. We live in a constitutional republic, a constitutional republic intended to protect the inherent rights of the people. And so what is government's role? Government's role is protecting the rights of the people. What corrupts government's role? Hypocritical politicians who are compromised by special interests. Now, maybe Christy Noem would have been a hit 20 years ago in the Republican Party of two decades ago, but today's Republican voters, today's conservative movement, wants a sturdy, principled fighter who doesn't cave when the going gets tough. So just say Noem to Christy. By the way, if you want to hear a good, insightful exploration of what conservatism is, what conservative governance is, then listen to Rush Limbaugh's CPAC speech from a few years back. It is phenomenal. In the meantime, I am Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. All right, big things are happening down in Texas. The Texas abortion law has gone into effect, and boy, oh boy, are abortion advocates in a tizzy. This is one of the most interesting pro-life laws that our nation has seen in decades. We're going to get to that in a second, but first I want to talk to you about Moink Box. If you could see and taste this bacon from moinkbox.com, you would order it right now. So as you know, I'm vegan. So I asked my husband, who's essentially Ron Swanson, for an endorsement, and this was what he said. He said, meat, period. And then he informed me that that's all the endorsement that it needs. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. We like that. Their animals are raised outdoors. Their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink... Meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Gross. So sign up at moinkbox.com slash Liz. If you do, and if you use slash Liz, you'll get a year of bacon for free. A year of bacon for free, and then you pick what makes you want delivered with your first box. So join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash Liz right now, and listeners to the show get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you will ever taste but it's only for a limited time. It's spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash Liz. That's moinkbox.com slash Liz. Do yourself a favor. Go to moinkbox.com slash Liz. Okay, let's talk about Texas. Um, what is happening in Texas right now is absolutely fascinating to watch. So for those of you who may not be following along with the details, Texas passed an abortion bill that bans abortions once a heartbeat of the unborn child can be detected. We all know scientifically this is about six weeks into the pregnancy that a baby's heartbeat can be detected. I actually remember the six-week uh, appointment, ultrasound appointment, when I was pregnant with my daughter. We saw that little heartbeat just beating, beating, beating on the ultrasound. Um, and I, of course, burst into tears. It was incredibly moving to see that little tiny, the size of a pea, smaller than a pea, that little life beating inside of me. Um, in Texas, thank goodness, they have now banned abortions after you can detect a fetal heartbeat. It's called SB8. Um, by the way, 85% of abortions in Texas happen after six weeks. So what we are facing right now in Texas is the majority of abortions have become illegal. Now, you might be asking, well, how on earth is this going to stand? Because I think it's a dozen other states, 12 other states have had pro-life bills, heartbeat bills that are similar to this bill that have been blocked by the courts because of Roe v. Wade. So what makes us think that this bill will stand, uh, stand up to the scrutiny of the Supreme Court? 
And here's what I will tell you. This bill is different because of the enforcement mechanism of the bill. And what I mean by that is in this bill in Texas, there is what's called a private right to action. This private right to action deputizes private citizens as opposed to government officials, state officials. Private citizens can sue abortion providers or anybody who is complicit in an abortion. So again, instead of in other states, similar bills to this have allowed government officials to sue abortion providers if they break this law. And so it's been almost easy to smack these bills down in the court system because all um, all the abortion provider has to do is say, hey, these government officials are violating Roe v. Wade. But this bill is different because private citizens have standing to sue abortion providers if they are complicit in an abortion. And so it's difficult to know how to stop this bill in the court, at least until some woman who is seeking an abortion has said, hey, I wasn't able to get an abortion because of um, because the abortion provider was scared to commit the abortion because they were scared of being sued. Still, there might be no way to actually identify that private citizen if the private citizen hasn't sued. So it might sound like legalese, and it is legalese, but it's extremely clever. It's extremely clever. And we'll have to see what happened. Abortion providers or abortion proponents in the state had asked the Supreme Court to stop the implementation of this law before it went into effect on September 1st. And so the Supreme Court declined to do so. They simply, I mean, they don't make any statement about it. They just don't take action, at least overnight going into September 1st. Um, and so this already is very different from other states' abortion bills. Now, we're not just talking about abortion providers, by the way. Private individuals can sue anybody who aids or abets an abortion, knowingly aids or abets an abortion. So that means that could be a man who drives a woman to an abortion. That could even be an Uber driver that knowingly drives a woman to an abortion. Anybody who successfully sues another person who is aiding and abetting an abortion would be entitled to at least $10,000. This is a civil lawsuit, by the way. But the one person who may not be sued, let's be very clear about this, because abortion proponents love to spread misinformation, the woman, even if she's seeking an abortion that she knows is illegal, the woman may not be sued. I repeat, the woman may not be sued. Again, how to challenge this in a court is going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch this play out because it's hard to know who to sue because it's not a government placing an undue burden on the woman, right? Because the private citizen would be the one to sue. So theoretically, we could see a situation where the Supreme Court does nothing related to this Texas law until October. In October, the Supreme Court is already scheduled to decide um, essentially whether or not to uphold Roe v. Wade, right? Because of a similar law in the state of Mississippi, in the state of Mississippi that has banned abortions after 15 weeks. This has been challenged um, this is all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agreed to hear it, whether or not this Mississippi law violates Roe v. Wade. Now, here's what I will say about this. First of all, I don't have a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court right now. We have this weird division in the Supreme Court. It's not just liberal justices and conservative justices, or as I like to say, constitutional justices and non-constitutional justices. We have this um, three-way division where we have the liberal justices, sure, but then the conservative or so-called conservative justices are divided amongst themselves into ones who seem to hold precedent as higher than the Constitution, and then ones who hold the Constitution as higher than precedent. Now, it's pretty obvious who I think are the ones who are right here. We have 
Um, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Precedent, the only purpose of precedent, by the way, is to make sure that the law is equitably applied, right? You don't want to have um, a situation where an interpretation of the Constitution um, is handed down by one judge and a individual citizen is forced to adhere to that interpretation, whereas another citizen is forced to adhere to a different interpretation of the same law or the same provision in the Constitution by another judge. So precedent is just supposed to create some, for, some sort of uniformity, if you will. That being said, when precedent is wrong, it should be overturned. When a Supreme Court ruling is wrong, it not only can be overturned, the current Supreme Court justices have a responsibility and a duty to overturn it. Uh, that is the case with Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is obviously wrong. The Supreme Court should obviously overturn it. Now remember, the, the basis of Roe v. Wade is that um, a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion because somewhere in the 14th Amendment, we're not sure where because it doesn't actually exist, there is a constitutional right to privacy, the left tells us, and that apparently encompasses a constitutional right for a woman to kill and dismember her child in utero. Again, you and I have both read the Constitution. We know it's not there. This then was codified even further in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which uh, stated that the state could not place an undue burden on a woman, meaning they could not ban any abortions uh, before viability. Now, viability, as we both know, is um, not a scientific term so much as a marker of our human medical advances or lack thereof, because viability shifts based on our medical advances. It used to be 30 weeks, then it was 26 weeks, then it was 25 weeks, now it's 23 weeks. Now a baby as early as 20 weeks gestation has lived because of medical intervention. So viability is not actually a scientific term. It's just a marker of how advanced we are medically. But the Supreme Court essentially wants to use that very scientifically imprecise word to define the humanity of the unborn child. So that's the background of Roe v. Wade. But Roe v. Wade itself, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, but Roe v. Wade itself is wrong. It's wrong because it pretends to be constitutional law, but it's not. Even the uh, law clerk for the Supreme Court Justice, Harry Blackmun, who wrote the majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, his law clerk, Edward Lazarus, who is pro-abortion himself, said the following, quote, as a matter of constitutional interpretation and judicial method, Roe borders on indefensible. Justice Blackmun's opinion provides essentially no reasoning in support of its holding, and in the years since Roe's announcement, no one has produced a convincing defense of Roe on its own terms. Every time I read that, and I read that just about every year uh, around the anniversary of Roe v. Wade in January, every time I read that, I'm just struck that even the law clerk of the Supreme Court justice who wrote the majority ruling in Roe v. Wade knows that it's a farce, knows that there is no constitutional right to abortion. And there's a Yale law professor named John Hart Eli who, like Lazarus, supports legalized abortion, but legislatively. Eli says, quote, what's frightening about Roe is that this super protected right is not inferable from the language of the Constitution. The framers thinking, respecting the specific problem in, in issue, any general value derivable from the provisions they included or the nation's governmental structure. It's bad because it's bad constitutional law, or rather, because it's not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of obligation to try to be. In other words, Roe v. Wade is the worst piece of constitutional law in history that has ever come from the Supreme Court. There is no right to abortion, in this so-called right to privacy in the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, by the way, says, nor shall the state 
deprive any person of the right to life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So please, legally, tell me, where is the right for a woman to kill her unborn child or an abortionist to kill a child in a woman's womb? Where is that in the 14th Amendment? It obviously doesn't exist. We shouldn't even, that's why you'll notice that the pro-abortion left doesn't even have this argument anymore. They don't even engage in debate. They don't even pretend that abortion is constitutional anymore. They just want it to be legal up until the moment of birth anyway. They won't engage in any kind of constructive discussion about this because they know they're wrong. They know that it's not constitutional. So that being said, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land right now because the Supreme Court ruled it to be so. It is the precedent against which all pro-life or anti-abortion laws are measured from the state level. So because it's precedent, and this, by the way, this is why I don't have confidence that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. I hate to be a pessimist here. I don't have confidence because there are members of the Supreme Court, Roberts, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, just to name names here, let's not be vague, who seem to hold the idea of precedent higher than the idea of the Constitution. So even if they think that it's wrong, even if they think the ruling is wrong, perhaps they would put that precedent on a higher pedestal than the Constitution, and therefore they would vote to uphold Roe v. Wade. That's what I suspect will happen. I hope and I pray that it doesn't happen. But here's what I would say from a legal standpoint. From a legal standpoint, just because something is precedent, or as the left likes to call it, settled law, just because something is precedent or settled law doesn't mean that it's permanent. It can be overturned. And in the history of our nation, we have a long history of overturning incorrect rulings, unconstitutional laws, or wrongly decided cases, even after they have been settled law, even after they have been precedent for years and years, decades, in some cases, more than half a century. Dred Scott versus Sanford is a good example. In that case, the Supreme Court ruled that black people in our country were not citizens. That was later overruled by the 14th Amendment. It was settled law and it was overturned. Plessy versus Ferguson is maybe a better example because in this case, first the Supreme Court ruled to uphold racial segregation. This was settled law. This was precedent for 60 years until the Supreme Court, not just a constitutional amendment, the Supreme Court overturned their own ruling in Brown versus Board of Education. That is what the Supreme Court is supposed to do. When there's a wrongly decided decision, they are supposed to act as they should and overturn it in accordance with the Constitution, not wrongly, not wrong-minded justices from yesteryear. And again, remember, overturning Roe does not make abortion illegal in our country. Overturning Roe simply leaves the matter to the states, which you can argue that's where it should. Some would argue that the Constitution itself, the 14th Amendment itself, actually would prohibit abortion. That's what I would argue. But at the very least, overturning Roe doesn't make abortion illegal. It leaves it to the state to each state, each and every state, I should say. Now, you'll hear this narrative from the left right now, from pro-abortion activists right now, that women in Texas are being denied health care. During a pandemic, they're being denied basic health care because they don't have access currently to uh, legal abortion after the detection of a heartbeat of that unborn baby. And here's what I would say to that. No, just no. Abortion is not health care. Abortion is not curative. There is no disease. Pregnancy is not an ill. Abortion is not healthcare. In fact, abortion is dangerous for women. This is what I mean. The left will say that if there is not legal abortion, then women will still have abortions. They will just be illegal. 
the left will hold up coat hangers. They mailed coat hangers, actually, to Senator Susan Collins after she voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. They'll say women will die from dangerous back alley abortions. This is false. The CDC itself, statistics from the CDC, debunk this. So in 1972, this is the year before Roe, there were 39 deaths in the United States. 39 women died from illegal abortions. There were also 24 deaths in the few states where abortion was legal. Then in 1973, this is the same year the Supreme Court ruled on Roe, abortion became legal across the nation. The CDC reported there were 19 deaths from illegal abortions and 25 deaths from legal abortion. In other words, abortion is dangerous. Abortion is not healthcare. Abortion is unconstitutional and the Supreme Court should overturn it. Kudos to Texas for coming up with a legally clever way to protect those babies in utero. Do you know 150 babies a day will be saved in Texas under this, under this Texas abortion bill? 150 babies a day. It's incredible. Meanwhile, pivoting just a little bit north uh, to California, to the recall election here, um, conservative candidate Larry Elder has an absolutely fabulous point that I want to focus on for a second. Larry Elder says that black people in California and Hispanics are actually the key to winning the recall elections. He's appealing directly to blacks and Hispanics because blacks and Hispanics have been singularly harmed by the Gavin Newsom administration, the tyrant King Gavin, singularly hurt by his administration. Why? Larry Elder identifies poor quality public education, the rising crime rate across the state, and the absolutely abysmal, unaffordable cost of living um, in the state. And who do those three things harm the most? Well, Black and Hispanic voters. That is why Black and Hispanic voters who voted for Gavin Newsom are now identifying as people who want to recall him. People who want to recall him. This is what Elder says. This is a quote. 80% of the kids educated in government schools in California are black and brown. The lion's share of them are Hispanics and they are getting a lousy education and they know it. The worst teachers, the worst principals, and the worst bureaucrats. Okay, so the worst teacher that you have probably ever seen in your life is indoctrinating children in the state of California. I wanna show you this in just a moment, but first I wanna to talk to you about ExpressVPN. So we all know that a VPN protects your privacy and the security of your family online, right? But I recently learned that you can also use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are ostensibly only available in other countries. It's really simple, this is how it works. You fire up your ExpressVPN app, you change your location to any other country, we'll just use the UK as an example, you refresh your streaming service, your video streaming service, maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's Hulu, and that's literally all there is to it. It works like this. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want these websites to think you are located. So you can choose from almost 100 different countries. So imagine all the Netflix libraries that you can go through. And again, ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, Netflix, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there. ExpressVPN is the best, in my opinion, because it's fast. I don't like when there's buffering. I don't like when there's lagging. None of that with ExpressVPN. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big stream wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash Liz, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So support the show, watch what you want, protect yourself and your family at expressvpn.com slash Liz. You'll be glad you did. Make no mistake, Larry Elder is correct. The public school system in the state of California is 
abysmal, the absolute worst. You will not believe this teacher. This teacher is up in Sacramento, California at Intercom High School. His name is Gabriel Geip, and he is teaching children. I'm sorry, teaching is the wrong word here. Teaching insinuates that there's a level of integrity here. This teacher, Gabriel Geip, is brainwashing your children, indoctrinating them with Antifa tactics. Take a listen to this. I have 180 days to turn them into revolutionaries. How do you do that? How do you scare the out of them? Sacramento organization that is under the banner of Antifa is, is very loosely organized, right? Um, so that, yeah, when, when there is like right-wing rallies and stuff, then we like, we'll create an opposition to that. Yeah. Beautiful. Where would he go to connect to some of these organizations? Like, no, I, I post calendar oh, every okay, week. Awesome. And then, so like, they, it's and I do it for extra credit. So they get points for doing it. Like, and so that encourages them to do it. <laughs> and I've, I've had like students show up for like protests, community events, you know, tabling, food distribution, all sorts of, sorts of things. They, when they go, they take pictures, they write up a reflection, that's their extra credit. Like I, I have an Antifa flag on my, on my wall. Um, and a student complained about that, and you said it made him feel uncomfortable. Well, this is meant to make fascists feel uncomfortable, so if you feel uncomfortable, I, I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> like, maybe you shouldn't be aligning with the, the values that it, this is antithetical to. So, the Cultural Revolution in the 60s was fixing the problem that came about after the economic one. It ultimately failed, right? Um, there was a lot of excesses. People were definitely, like, you know, shot in the streets that probably shouldn't have been. By the way, he also has a poster of Mao Zedong in his classroom in addition to that Antifa flag. Can you believe this? His, his agenda is literally to turn your child into a radical, 180 days to turn your child into a radical. And when a student expressed concern about the Antifa flag, the teacher said, well, if you're, a, if you're offended by the Antifa flag, it's probably because you're a fascist. This is what's being taught in California public schools. Horrifying, absolutely horrifying. Kudos to Project Veritas for capturing this on video because otherwise, to be honest, I'm not sure a lot of parents would believe the extent of this indoctrination. You have to see it to believe it. And thank goodness we are seeing this. Down in San Diego, San Diego County is also enacting, this isn't in the public school system, but San Diego County is um, has passed a new provision that names, quote unquote, medical misinformation as a public health crisis. Now, we, we hardly even need to go through the reasons why this is terrifying, the reasons why this is scary. But this was a three to two vote. Um, San Diego County Supervisors Jim Desmond and Joel Anderson, they are both Republicans, they voted no, while San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher, Nora Vargas, and Tara Lawson-Remmer, all Democrats, voted in favor of this. So what this measure does, this measure gives government some control over speech. Make no mistake, it might not be stifling your speech at the moment, but it pits you against the government itself. Because this measure, which declares medical misinformation, a public health crisis, allows for the creation of platforms for local med medical authorities to counter the misinformation. So basically, tax money will probably be used to counter what you might be saying, your skepticism about masks, universal masking in schools, the vaccine mandates, anything that the government, the CDC, Fauci, maybe even the WHO, who knows, anything that the government thinks they don't want you to say about the COVID-19 crisis, there will not be money given to local medical authorities to counter that. The county is directed to follow the recommendations of the U.S. Surgeon General in his advisory calling confronting health misinformation. So in this advisory, 
Provisions include identifying and labeling health misinformation. Again, this is where the government is now pitted against you. You say something, and according to this new provision in San Diego, the government will now contradict, contradict you, identify you, and contradict you. And this is the creepiest part of it all. Part of this advisory includes a provision to document the source and impact of misinformation. Document the source of misinformation. What does that mean? That means the government will now have the capacity to document if they think you are saying something that they don't want you to say about the COVID-19 pandemic. Documenting sources of misinformation. How utterly creepy is that? The city of San Diego, by the way, I know California is a very liberal state, but the people of San Diego turned out in droves to oppose this draconian takeover of speech, this draconian government overstepping their boundaries. A history teacher in San Diego called into this meeting where over 200 people signed up to oppose this mandate. A history teacher just absolutely smoked the San Diego Board of Supervisors. Take a listen to this. This vagueness can only mean one thing. The governing leaders hope to use this as a platform from which to jump off of in an attempt to grab even more power over the citizens of San Diego County. By choosing to label whatever they see fit as quote-unquote medical misinformation, the supervisors are blatantly limiting free speech. This is terrible. No Democratic Republic can limit free speech and increase the reach of the government without ending a tyranny. We the people have every right and duty to publicly discuss all issues relevant to us, even if we are not experts in that given field. This includes COVID-19. James Madison wrote in Federalist 10 that despite the potential for factionalism, a larger public with various groups of thought and diversity of ideas actually provides for more political and social stability if these diverse groups of thought are given the freedom to coexist with one another. By seeking to uh, just establish one or two major factions that control the entire republic, um, as was the case in the early state legislatures in their respective states under the Articles of Confederation, the founders established a republic that not only guaranteed the representation of all different schools of thought, but they guaranteed a republic wherein citizens were free to think. Our nation and our republic is great because we have a variety of regions, a variety of cultures, and a variety of thoughts and beliefs. Choosing to suppress citizens and strip them of their right of free speech, especially regarding an ongoing issue that affects every individual differently, is nothing short of draconian. Censorship is a tyrant's favorite tool because it allows him or her to continue consolidation of power and assert ever-increasing levels of control over the average citizen. That's entirely the reason why our founding fathers had the wisdom to include the First Amendment to the Constitution in order to guarantee the protection of all free speech. They recognized that this meant many statements and sentiments would be based on questionable information or straight-up misinformation, and that many of these statements and sentiments would be directed directly against the government. But they believed it was better to have some citizens who were misinformed than to have an entire nation of people whose thoughts and opinions could not be expressed freely. They trusted in the other institutions of the fledgling nation, like Thank churches, you. the schools, the communities, and above all, the family. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Thank you. Our next caller is 7371. All I have to say to this is get your child a history teacher like Ms. Grace Thorstad. Get your child a history teacher that will do the opposite of what Mr. Antifa up in Sacramento is doing, where 180 days in Ms. Thorstad's classroom, you'll be educated, you'll be a patriot, and you will know why. 
Ms. Thor said, by the way, was not the only person that showed up. As I said, 200 people either called in or showed up in person. This was, I believe, a nine or 14 hour. This was an entire day of people talking to the San Diego Board of Supervisors. A former corpsman that my husband used to work with in the Navy absolutely scorched the San Diego Board of Supervisors based on what her stepdaughter does for a living. Take a listen to this. My name is Jillian Hazeldean, and I am a resident of San Diego District 4. I am a U.S. Navy veteran. I hold a nursing degree, a bachelor's in public health, and I am one month away from a master's in criminal justice. But today, I stand here as a mother. My oldest stepdaughter is a San Diego police officer, and, 20, and during 2020, with no vaccine, she stood front and center protecting your buildings from being lit on fire while you turned a blind eye to all the rioting taking place. Then you demonized her, you defunded her, and now you are discriminating against her. She has put blood, sweat, and tears into this career only to be told that if she doesn't take a vaccine, she will lose her job. This is where I am stepping in. You will not inject any of my family members with a vaccine that there is no long-term data on. Purveyor's data, 13,000 people have died from this vaccine. Do these lives not matter to you? To the individual sitting up there, you took an oath to protect the community. You should feel ashamed of yourselves for attempting to make mandates against citizens of your county and take away their personal rights. This charade of trying to inject an entire population with a drug against a virus that we know only affects a certain demographic is insanity. And now we are even, we know with the vaccine, you can still get and spread COVID. We do not consent to any of these mandates or coercion to be vaccinated, regardless of FDA approval. This charade needs to stop and you need to allow people to make their own personal health decisions. My stepdaughter worked through the entire pandemic without this vaccine and never once got sick. She never had any days off and any COVID couch pay. She is a hero. And every single one of you sitting up there have lost your minds if you think that you're going to take that away from her over a vaccine. This is not misinformation. This is the truth. And if I have to go to law school to hold every single one of you accountable, I will do that. <laughs> And by the way, I talked to Alex Berenson. I don't want to forget to tell you this. I talked to Alex Berenson, who has recently been permanently banned from Twitter. I talked to him this week to not only talk about his pending legal action against um, Twitter for permanently banning him, but also we talked about the science of the vaccines, the efficacy of the vaccines based on the actual data, based on the studies. For locals, VIPs, you will have early exclusive access to this full interview. And for the rest of you, I highly encourage you to join our community, Liz Wheeler Show community, at lizwheelershow.com slash locals because based on what Alex and I were talking about, we can't put the full video of this on YouTube. It will be censored. We will receive a strike. They will probably pull the video down. So if you want to see this full interview, fascinating conversation about the efficacy of vaccines with Alex Berenson, join us, lizwheelershow.com slash locals. But let's, let's keep talking about San Diego for a second. In case you thought that this government interference in speech, in case you think that this isn't social engineering, in case you think this isn't Marxism, in case you think that actions like this, which we're seeing across the country, are not designed to destroy the nuclear family and usher in Marxism into the United States, well, let me introduce you to a lawmaker in Pennsylvania who wants to legally allow, he has introduced legislation that would allow children 14 years old and above to get the COVID vaccine, even if their parents oppose it. 
The man's name is Dan Frankel. He is a state representative in the 23rd district. I highly recommend you vote him out, by the way, because his view of inherent rights, his view of parental rights is essentially Marxist. This is what he said. We need to make sure that everybody gets vaccinated. No, sir, you don't. You're a government official. You are not a doctor. You are not us. We can make that decision for ourselves. But he says, we also need to make sure that if a young person wants to get vaccinated, but their parents may object that they have the ability to get that vaccination. He goes, ideally, we'd like to have parents cooperate with us, but sometimes young people understand that they need to protect their futures. Let's get something very straight here. This is a Marxist idea that Representative Frankel is propagating. The Marxist idea is that children belong to the state first and not the parents. Representative Frankel is introducing legislation that would take your parental rights away, allow your child to be subjected to what I assume will be very strong coercion at school and at every social activity to get vaccinated even above your opposition. Ideally, he says, he wants parents to cooperate with him, but if parents don't, then we'll just take that parental right away from them. It's a Marxist idea. Now, by the way, I know this is all very depressing. This is all very discouraging. This is all very scary and overwhelming to see this happening in our country. Thank goodness we have good people who are fighting back. And the results of you fighting back, the result is sometimes we win. Sometimes we turn the tide. Sometimes we turn these Marxists on their head. And that's what happened in the case of Chicago mom, Rebecca Furlitt. Remember, we talked about her early in the week. She had custody of her son stolen from her by a Cook County judge, Judge Shapiro, because she was unvaxxed. The judge arbitrarily asked her if she had been vaccinated against COVID-19, and she said, no, I've had bad reactions to vaccines in the past, and so I am not vaccinated. Because of that, the judge took away custody of her son. Well, after we talked about it, after the immense outcry from liberty-minded people across the country, the judge has not only reversed his ruling, he has been taken off the case. So give yourself a round of applause your voice makes a difference. Your voice matters. All right, I want to give a huge shout out to our locals VIP of the week. This is A. Vincent. A. Vincent, welcome to the Liz Wheeler Show community. We are delighted to have you on Locals. As you know, we do a lot of fun things on the Liz Wheeler Show community. The most fun thing of all is we don't have to worry about censorship. We can discuss and debate any topic that we want without fear of retribution from big tech. Um, we do live question and answers. We did a live just this week talking about Afghanistan, sort of a live reaction to what was going on. There are exclusive interviews. You get access to ad-free shows. And there's just a tremendous camaraderie. There's a tremendous community, tens of thousands of people, like-minded people all in one spot who are fighting the good fight. Hey, Vincent, thank you for joining us. Anybody else who wants to join our community over on Locals, go to lizwheelershow.com slash locals. All right, that's all I have for today. I'll be back. In the meantime, think for yourself, use critical thought, reject critical theory, question authority, follow the facts, and don't let government or corporate wokeism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. I am Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzel. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.